Thanks, Tabby. Can we give Tabby a little round of applause? I don't know. If, I don't know what you call Tabani, but most of us here call him Tabby Cat, and he loves that name. So you're welcome to call him that. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Grant. If you don't know me, it's good to see you guys. It's good to see some different faces here. We've got some visitors from out of town. So Matt Hardy has hopped in. Jamie and Lisa Tunent are visiting us here today, which is also very cool. It's nice to see them. And um, we've also got some friends who've, well, there's a whole bunch of friends who've come and visited us today. But we're carrying on with our um, Hidden Messages series today, going through the five one-chapter books of the Bible. So it's a bit of a different series. I don't know of any other church that's done something like this before, and we're partnering with our friends at Orlando North Church in Florida to do this together with them. So they'll be preaching through this kind of message in about six hours' time. But really, one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because we want to be a community that knows the Scriptures. We want to love the Word. We want to love the Spirit. We want to be shaped by those things, and we want to be growing in our faith. And I think one of the things that inspired this series was about 10 years ago, I was in Bloemfontein at this conference, and a guy named Andrew Thompson got up to preach. I think some of you would know him. He leads a church called Church on Main down in Cape Town. And he got up at this conference of about 5,000 people, a huge crowd, really kind of big event. And he opens his Bible and says, today I'm going to be preaching out of the book of 2 John. Now, if you don't know 2 John, it is an interesting book. We're about to get into it now. But also, you might not know Tomo. Tomo is not like Shane Cadman, who is like the most animated, energetic preacher you've ever seen, full of illustrations and charisma. Tomo is a little bit more subdued. Like, he will open the scriptures and teach through them. He's just got a very different style. And I feel like every time I've heard him speak, I've left there loving God more, loving the scriptures more, and wanting to understand actually what the Bible says, because I realize almost how shallow my understanding of the word is. And in front of 5,000 people, he read the book of 2 John, and at the end of it, I thought to myself, this is going to be a real bomb this morning, you know? Like, you read this book through, and you think to yourself, what is going on? Like, there's nothing happening here. This is such a boring book. And he read it through, and then half an hour later, as he finished his preach, I thought to myself, I'm sorry, God. Like, I repented. Because honestly, it was like God had spoken to me so profoundly. The scriptures had come alive to me. I loved God more. I wanted to go home and read my Bible. I was so inspired by this talk. And I realized, you know what? All scripture is God-breathed and useful. Something I think we don't often believe. You know, we're reading some of these awkward parts of the Bible. And we think, ah, that's, that's not a great But Let me go back to my favorite scriptures. But actually, all scripture is God-breathed and useful. And at the same time, it put this hunger in me to know the scriptures more. That's what we desire as a church. We want to know them, we want to study them, read them, meditate on them, apply them to our lives, and really we want to grow in our faith to become more like Jesus as a church. So with that in mind, if you can open your Bibles to the book of 2 John today, if you know where it is and if you can find it, otherwise it'll come up on the screen just behind me here, and I'm going to read it through and teach on it this morning, and hopefully I can do justice to the book, and hopefully um, God would inspire something in us similar to what happened that day 10 years ago. So 2 John chapter 1 And verse 1, it says, The elder to the elect lady, or the NIV says, the chosen lady, and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, 
that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. It's an interesting book. I think first up, we've got to answer the question, who's writing this? And we get the answer here right at the beginning. It's the elder. Now, the elder could mean a whole lot of different things to you. It's not talking about his age. It's not the age bracket he's in. And it's not his name. It's actually a a term of authority. It's a position or title of someone in the church. So myself, Shane, and Brendan are the three elders here at Harbor City Church. And that that word might be a little bit weird to you. Um, That word might sound a little bit cultish, the elders in the church. You might have this picture of people with like these brown cloaks and hoods and getting into Gregorian chants or something like that when you hear that kind of word. It's, it's not a weird word. It's a word that really means leader or pastor or shepherd. The elders of the church lead the church. They teach the church. They shepherd the church. Really, in a nutshell, that is what we do. But really, this term here isn't just his position. It seems to be a term of affection that the church used for this man. They call him the elder. It's not just his position. It's, it's a, a name like some of you in the past have called me Pastor G. You know, it's like a really sweet term of affection or kind of like when Kimmy calls Brendan Baba Ganush at home. It's a term of affection because she loves him so much. And I think that's what's going on here with the church is they're wanting to honor this person that they love. John seems to be either this apostolic leader or this pastor or maybe the person who planted the church. And he has this key role in that church. But who is he? He's John the Apostle. He's one of Jesus's 12. He's a really, really big deal. In fact, in John 21 verse 20, this man is called the disciple Jesus loved. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, that would be like one of the top titles you could get. It seems from what a lot of people say that he was Jesus's best friend on this earth. So we get the idea that John was probably an incredible man. And as he writes this letter to this church, as he would have preached and spent time with people, he would have had such a deep desire to represent God's heart to others. He wanted people to know what Jesus prioritized and what Jesus loved and what Jesus taught so they could faithfully live that out and respond to it. And when John is writing this letter, he's an old man. The historians reckon he died at about the age of 93 or 94 in AD 100. If you're going to go out, AD 100 is the year to die. And John goes out in that year and would have written this somewhere near the end of his life. So he's probably late 70s, in his 80s. And at that time, he's overseeing this network of churches around the city of Ephesus, and he's caring for them. He's teaching them. He's pastoring them. He's writing to them. And what the kind of commentators or historians from back in the day say is this man who's walked with Jesus for about seven decades in his old age would just preach this sermon again and again. This is what you would most likely hear him say just before he died. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. That is profound spiritual wisdom for you and I today, right from John's mouth. Secondly, who is this letter written to? It says right here at the beginning, it's to the elect or the chosen lady and her children. But who is this chosen lady? Who's this elect lady? And there's a whole bunch of theories about this if you want to go and research this later. 
Uh, not many of them are that strong. But some people think, you know, maybe the elect lady was actually Mary, Jesus' own mother, and that they were writing to her. You know, Jesus kind of said to John, would you take her under your wing? And Mary, would you take John under your wing when he was on the cross? But no one really thinks that's accurate. Otherwise, it could be written to a lady called elect or chosen. You know, her name could have been Electa or Curious, which are those two um, uh, Greek words for those names. But no one really thinks that works. And also because of the language throughout the letter, it's always in the plural. It's like Shane's or Sonia's the whole way through. So you can see it's not talking to one person. It's talking to a group of people. And there's a whole bunch of other theories. This could have even been a love letter that John was writing to a woman in the church that he loved. But really, it seems that beyond all of those, John is actually writing to one local church. This is the strongest case by far. A church like Harbor City that he's wanting to write to with a message to encourage them and build the church up. And her children are the members of the church or the people that make up that congregation. And here's John is writing as this apostolic leader, as the guy who planted the church, as this person that they respect. He's got some invited authority to speak into the life of that community. And he's writing to help them to walk in the truth and to love Jesus more and to live out their faith. And I think we can lose some of the significance of this, you know. I don't know how many of you would have read a Christian blog this week, but I sometimes think we can read a letter like this and we just think, oh, it's like one of those blogs, you know. I read tons of them this week. It's just like something that you do. And we don't pay attention to this. But we don't think that 2,000 years ago, these guys didn't have cell phones, they didn't have computers, they didn't have blogs, they didn't have email. Communication was actually a really, really big deal. You know, this week, I think I FaceTimed people in a few different countries. To us, that's normal. But in this day, actually, the only way that you would communicate between churches and leaders was either a letter or you traveled all the way there and you spent time with the people. Those were your two options, you know. Add to this the fact that most of the people in this church wouldn't have been able to read. So it's not like they would have been reading a lot of letters or books on their own. Add to this the fact that the Bible wasn't around yet. You know, I don't know how often you guys pop into CUM. I love a good book, so I love a good Christian bookstore. But if you go to the Bible section of any Christian bookstore, there are a lot of options that you can get into, you know. You've got a whole bunch of different translations. You've got Bibles for every occasion. You know, I've got like a nice, sleek, sexy black Bible for today. You can pick the kind of Bible that represents your personality, something that goes with your outfit, whatever you want. And I'm sure some of you guys have got like 10 Bibles at home sitting on your shelves, you know. I think I've given away a bunch of Bibles in my life. On my phone, I think I've got three Bible apps. I've probably got over 100 different Bible translations on my phone. I think some of you are looking at me like I'm bragging. This is not a humble brag. I'm not trying to say I'm really, really spiritual, you guys. I think you guys have the same. It's amazing this access to Scripture and information that we've got. Well, if you don't, you should repent. Nathan, repent, repent. Um, But back in the day, it just wasn't this way. They didn't have the whole Bible yet, you know? Some of these churches wouldn't even have a copy of the Old Testament in their community. They didn't have the New Testament. It was still being written. This letter of 2 John is being added to the New Testament canon. So in those days, when an apostle of Jesus wrote a letter to your community like this, and it arrived, this was a big deal. Like, if I can contemporize it for us, like, we would stop everything we were doing, you know? God is speaking to us through one of these men. We're going to cancel our preaching series. We're going to spend three months on John's letter to us. We're going to print a copy for everyone. It's going on every chair. It's going up on our blog. It's going on our website. We're going to adjust it, like, do a kids' ministry curriculum around this because we want our kids to know this. We're going to do this in our life groups. We're going to ask everyone to memorize these 13 verses out of 2 John. And we would talk about it for ages. And then for years, we would reference it. Remember what John wrote to us that time? Ah, yes, you remember it. And everyone would know these verses because it was so key and so, so important. Getting a letter like this would have been a big deal. This was an apostle writing to the church 
to strengthen and encourage the community. So what are the three big ideas that John writes to this church? I think you're going to be a bit disappointed. He says, love the church, love one another, love the gospel. Those are the three ideas. Sounds so simple. Some of us are like, no, give us the meaty stuff. Give us the good stuff. And John's saying, no, these are the important things to go down deep into your heart, church, as a foundation to help you to grow big and strong. I can actually summarize this letter into two words, love and truth. Doesn't sound that impressive to us, but John is wanting those things to shape us and the kind of community that we're becoming. So let's start with the first idea, love the church. 2 John 1 verse 1 and 2 says, the elder to the elect or chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. I thought, let me rewrite that for us as a church, because I think sometimes the language can trip us up. This is Grant's paraphrase or contemporary version of that. John, to the church and her members, whom I love so much, and it's not just me, but everyone who builds their life on the eternal truth of the gospel, who loves the local church. John's saying, I love the church, and so should you. He's saying anyone who is in the truth of the gospel loves the local church. I think some of us could maybe struggle with that today. I think 100 years ago, no one would struggle with that. I think today in a more independent culture, I think we do wrestle with this reality. I think in Durban, a lot of people would wrestle with this idea that we should love the church and be part of the church. And you might sit there and you might say, well, of course John has to say that. Like, he's a pastor. He's a preacher. You know, he planted the church. Of course he's got to love the church. Or, Grant, you planted this church. You work for it. This is your job. Of course you've got to tell us to love the church. And you're sitting there and you think your friends and family that you know and you love who've been in a community of faith like this and have been hurt or have been let down or have been burnt or have been disappointed by people in the church and have left because it's too hard. I get that. I fully, fully get that. Now, I've been working in church for 11 years now. I've been the pastor of this church for four. I think I get to see the best and the worst in the life of the church, you know? Like some days, honestly, I can have two meetings. One's incredible. God is at work in someone's life. It's beautiful to see what he's doing. And then later on in the day, something happens. It's just like solar plexus punch. It's like, oh, how is this going on in this person's life? You're broken, devastated about what is going on. And like as we speak to other pastors, as we visit other churches, we see the highlights reel, like the testimonies of God's power at work in a community. And then you see the behind-the-scenes realities of sin and destruction and Satan getting his way and people's brokenness. And there's this reality in church that there's this humanity and divinity. It's kind of like Jesus coming to earth, you know? God comes in the flesh, fully man, fully God. It's something like that in the church. There's this supernatural, divine reality of the church. God is at work. Like, you wouldn't believe what God is doing in my life, my friend's life. So cool, we're seeing people getting baptized next week. Sometimes we've seen prayers answered. I, I actually saw someone answer, or God answer prayer for my family this week. It was amazing to see. But then other times we see the humanity. You know, we hurt one another. We sin against each other. We're disappointed with people. We can't believe, why would the leaders do that? That's so dumb, you know? We see the humanity and the divinity at work in the church, the supernatural reality of this community, and the very ordinary human even broken reality of the church like Harbor City. I want you to know I get it if you've been hurt by the church. My church love goggles are not on anymore. The Cadmans, the Coles, they know the realities. We love the church, but we know it's far from perfect. And I think that's really important because beyond the experiences we've had and the feelings we've had, I think Jesus has more reason to reject the church and give up on the church than any of us because of the way he's been spoken about and treated and even blasphemed in communities like this. 
C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Problem with X, says, don't say it's all very well for him, for God. He hasn't got to live with them. He has. He's inside them as well as outside them. He is with them far more intimately and closely and incessantly than we can ever be. Every vile thought with their minds and ours, every moment of spite, envy, arrogance, greed, and self-conceit comes right up against his patience and longing love and grieves his spirit more than it grieves ours. This is the gospel, that God loves us even though we are sinners, you know? That despite our brokenness, despite our consistent flaws and failings, that God loves us and chooses us and shows us grace, you know? God knows every dirty thought you've ever had. Like, I don't know what your mind's been like this week, but I'm embarrassed by some of the things I've thought about this week. God knows. He knows everything I've done. He knows everything that's been done to me. He knows every way I've mistreated people, actually the gross things in my heart. He knows it all, and he stays faithful to me. And beyond that, he went and died on the cross in my place for my sin. It's an incredible thing. He knows it all, far more than we do. And he died on the cross in our place, that we could be washed clean, set free, made righteous, given a new identity, and brought into a new life in Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. My point this morning is that Jesus knows far more than we do about the imperfection of the church, and he still loves her. He's got every reason to give up on her, every reason to say, I'm starting again, I'm doing something different, this church thing is not going to work. But he loves the church. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says that Jesus loves the church, and I'll just paraphrase, he died on the cross for her. And if God chooses the church again and again, despite our sinfulness and imperfection, so should we. And John writes it here. He says, everyone who is in the truth of the gospel loves the chosen lady, loves the church. It's a massive thing. I thought maybe I could give you two pictures just for us to think about this a bit more. Firstly, is a picture of adoption. These are both pictures of family. In adoption, I know some of you in this room have adopted children. There's this reality that you choose a child and you bring them into your family and all of a sudden they have a new identity and they've got new relationships. You know, in this family, they're a son, they're your child. All of a sudden, you're their parents, father, mother, whatever it is. And now they're relating to you in new ways. Their whole life has been changed completely. But they also have new relationships with their brothers and sisters. That's quite a big thing. It would be super weird in a new family if you were adopted in, if you just ignored your new brothers and sisters and just hung out with your father, you know? Okay, I'll speak to dad, but actually I don't want anything to do with them. Because when you come into this family, your life is going to change and your brothers and sisters are going to play a huge role in that. You're probably going to be sharing a room with one of them, you know? Single beds are going to bunk beds. All of a sudden, toys that were just the one kids are now both. You're sharing toys. You're sharing the remote when you want to watch TV. You're together in each other's space. And because you're different, there's going to be moments where there's fighting, you know? Brothers and sisters are going to fight in this new, adopted, beautiful family. And it would be so crazy when that happens for you as this adopted child new into this family to go to your father and say, Dad, I love you. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for choosing me. I really appreciate it, but I want you to know I'm out. Like, I'm not going to stay in this home anymore. I don't want to be part of this family anymore. That means no more family dinners. I'm not going to be doing chores. I'm not going to be staying in this house. I'm doing life on my own. I'm going out on my own. I still want a relationship with you, but I don't want a relationship with my brothers and sisters. It just seems so crazy to us. You work this stuff out. And I think some of us do this with our relationship with our Father in heaven, you know? We can't say, God, you are my Father, but I don't want anything to do with your family. I don't. You might have chosen me, but I didn't choose these brothers and sisters. I'm out of this. We don't realize that God has a purpose for us in the church, placing us here with other imperfect brothers and sisters to shape us and form us more into his image. 
Maybe another picture is a picture of Jesus with his bride, the church, you know? I think like Shell and I have been married just over five years now, and we would have such an awkward conversation if one of you, like a friend of mine, came to me and said, Gran, I love you. And I'm like, ah, oh, love you too, man. We're kind of like punching each other's arm, growing up. And you're like, ah, oh, I love you so much, Grant. But that wife of yours, oof, don't, like she's a nightmare, Grant. Like, I don't think you see it. I think you've got the love. Like, I can't believe you married her. Like, all those flaws and imperfections. She's like, she's the worst, man. I would be so, I'd be furious. You know, if you're a good husband in this room, you would be angry at your friends if they said that kind of thing about your wife. If they came to you and said, listen, I want to hang out with you. I just, as long as she's not invited. I'll be there as long as she's not invited. And I think some of us do think like that, you know. But I think there would be an anger that kind of fills us because I'm like, Shell's not just my friend, she's my wife. I've chosen to spend the rest of my life with her. I've committed myself to her. The Bible says we're one flesh. It's like we're one person. So you say something against her, you're saying something against me, you know. And I think Jesus says the same kind of thing when we speak out against his church. He's like, this is his bride who he loves and has died for. And someone comes up to him and says, Jesus, I love you, man. Throwing out with Jesus, you know, punching his arm. Love you so much. You're the best. Thank you for what you've done. I just hate your bride, the church. Have you, do you know the church? Oh, my. You would not believe what's happening at Harbor City at the moment. Like, this is the worst thing. She's so ugly. She's so gross. This is such a disgusting thing that's going on. I can't believe you died on the cross for her. I can't believe you married her, Jesus. What's wrong with you? You're crazy. I want a relationship with you, but not with the church. And that's just not the way it works. I thought of this morning, I don't know if you saw, it was a beautiful morning early on. I thought as we woke up, because God doesn't sleep, so he doesn't wake up, but like almost like going all the way across from the east to us, you know, kind of Australia, New Zealand, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Bangladesh, all the way across the world, as the light kind of comes and alarm clocks go up and people get out of bed. Almost God looking down at his church, he's like, Sunday, my people are gathering today, this is such a cool day, I love these churches. And then the sun kind of rises over Durban, And God looks down and he thinks, Harbor City, I love that church, man. Glenridge, I love that church. Glenwood Community Church, I love that church. Living Stones, I love that church. Grace Chapel, I love that church. Trinity, I love that church. And the sun keeps rising all the way across the world. You know, I love Orlando North. I love Restored all the way along. You can imagine God looking down with such deep love, despite our imperfection, despite our flaws, despite the fact we mess up all the time. God's incredible love that he chooses us and unconditionally commits himself to us. It's a beautiful thing. And I wanted to ask you, will you commit to the local church? Will you love the church? Will you build up the church? Because John says, anyone who is in the truth will love the local church. The second big idea here is love one another. I think this is something we talk about often as a church. I hope this has gotten into our hearts more and more. But to walk in the truth of the gospel looks like loving one another. And as I've already said, that means people who are different to you, people who are unlike you, people you wouldn't necessarily get on with, people who um, maybe you find it very awkward to connect with, that you love one another. And this is big. If we're going to love the church, we're going to love people because the church is made up of people. And throughout scripture, we see again and again that spiritual maturity looks like loving God and loving people. That's what it looks like. So I wanted to give you a bit of a spiritual maturity test today. These are some uh, ideas from the scriptures that you can answer for yourself. How well do I love my neighbor as I love myself? How well do I treat others the way I would want to be treated? How well do I love others unconditionally, even when they fail me or sin against me or disappoint me? How well do I love my enemies and forgive them? And how well do I love everyone? 
think like if you feel like you've gotten away from it, everyone's this blanket statement that includes everyone. How well do you love everyone? Because John is calling us to this kind of life, that we would love one another. And the way he defines this, I think, is not the way we would expect. In 2 John 1 verse 6, he says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. It's quite a radical thought, you know. Actually, our love for God and our love for others is tied with our living in obedience or living righteous lives. That's quite a huge thing, you know. If we love God, we'll love people. If we love God, we will obey his commands. And there's this tough truth here that with revelation comes responsibility. You know, for each of us in this room, I don't know, some of you have been in the church for a long time. The clearer we see God, the clearer we understand his truths, the more clearly we get what he is all about, the greater responsibility there is for us to live that stuff out, to live in light of these truths, which is really challenging and provocative for all of us. That is a hard thing to accept. But for each of us as we go forward and as we grow, how are you doing at loving God, at loving people, and obeying his commands? And the third and final point here is love the gospel or love the truth. 2 John 1 verse 7 to 9 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you've worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And I don't know if you picked it up when I read it through. Maybe you'll see it this afternoon when you go through again. But this whole letter has been weaving love and truth together again and again. It's intertwining these two words and these two ideas, almost scripture by scripture. And I'm sure you can think of people or churches that are really good at one. You know, love churches that are really good at care and counseling and taking care of people who are in need or helping the poor or loving your neighbor or whatever it might be. Those churches that excel at that. Or maybe truth churches that are great at preaching and teaching and doctrine and apologetics and courses and information. But what if we got both, a church of love and a church of truth? Because we need both, you know? If you think of love without truth, you think of something kind of soft and squishy, but it's kind of got no sense and it's drifting off everywhere and it's lovely and kind and lovable, but actually it's just drifting away from God and drifting away from truth and drifting into sin. Or you can think of maybe a truth without love situation which is hard and cold and cruel at times. So it's so black and white. This is right. This is wrong. This is the way it works. This isn't the way it works. You think of that kind of picture. It's horrible. Both are horrible. We don't want either. We want to be individuals and a community that is filled with love and truth. And John writes these words to us in a situation which is quite tough because there's a whole bunch of false teachers out on the loose. And John's writing to them to warn them that actually there's a whole lot of things that are being said at the moment that are not helpful around them. And we might think, sure, luckily that was the first century. You know, that was 2,000 years ago. I'm glad everything's sorted now today. Durban's fine. The church landscape's fine. But this isn't a first century problem. This is a church problem. This is a human problem. This is a sin problem. And this is still true for us today. So John warns us with the last part of his letter about false teachings and false gospels. And he tells us in verse 7 that many deceivers have gone out into the world. I don't know how you read that. But as I read that, the thing that I instantly thought was few deceivers, you know? You think, okay, in a city like Durban, you know, just over three million people, there's a few people who've gone out into the world who maybe want to hurt the church or don't believe what's true or want to cause division, maybe like 10 in Durban. But he doesn't say few there. He says many. And that's concerning for me. There are many deceivers out there. And it's almost like this wake-up call for us as the church. Don't be naive. Church, don't be naive. 
There are many deceivers out there. Many people are teaching things that are false. Many people who would love to lead you away from Jesus and the truth of the gospel towards other things. So don't be naive and be careful. And like preparing this and thinking about this and reading this, it feels like this real growing up moment, you know? I don't know, like, if you can think of some of those moments in your life where you had to grow up. I was thinking of myself, like, this is one of the earliest memories I can remember of being at swimming lessons and having that moment where you had to jump into the deep end of the pool and then swim to the side. Do you guys remember that? Like, I was scared, man. Like, I felt like I barely knew how to swim. Now, all of a sudden, I've got to take this leap. Now, I look back. I'm like, that's a joke, man. I'll jump in, I'll jump in the deepest end that you've got. Like, I will swim to the side. I'm not worried about that. But back then, this was huge for me. And I feel like John is doing this with the little children of this church. He's pushing them into the deep end so that they can get water safe, so that they can swim to the side, so that they can be prepared. Because he knows that there's going to be some troubles to come. It's like he's writing to the church and he says, okay, guys, you've had an amazing few years. You guys are a young church. You've been going for a while. We've been going just over four years as a church. And he says, you guys have had a good run. You know, you've been growing in the gospel. This community has been growing. It's been wonderful seeing you love one another in different situations. Your leaders are decent. They're teaching you the word of God. You're like being fed by the word. Like the spirit is around. All of the stuff is going on. But you haven't faced crisis yet. And it's like John is writing to them saying, crisis could be coming. False teachers are around. There is danger, church. So beware. And it feels like such a growing up moment, like a a losing your innocence moment. And I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. I was just thinking if you remember that moment as a child, or I don't know how old you were, where your dad or mom sat you down on the bed and spoke to you about the birds and the bees, you know? Before that, you'd believed in cabbage patches and stalks and all sorts of things. Now, all of a sudden, like, you would never see the world the same again. You'd never see a man or a woman. Like, you do that? Mom and dad, that's how it was made? It's like you lose your innocence, but you are growing up to understand how the world works. And it feels like that's what John is doing here. He's like, guys, it's not going to be pretty. I've got some news to tell you. We, We were keeping you innocent until now, but now you need to know what is going on. And I can imagine this church going, what? That's going on? There's false teachers out there. This church community has been so safe. You're saying these people in the church are imperfect. Some of them might hurt me. Satan is real. I've always thought of him as like this cartoon character. Satan is real and he wants to destroy the works of Jesus and the church. That's crazy, John. This is grown up stuff. John isn't being soft on them because he knows that they might need to know this stuff for what they're about to face. And John doesn't want to scare the church. He doesn't want them to live in fear, but he wants to prepare them. So practically, He tells them what teaching they can and can't trust. And he starts and he says, true teachers are the kind of people who are going to point you to Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, his life, death, burial, exaltation to heaven. They'll point you to that. False teachers, they're going to be distracted with a lot of other stuff. They might tell you about Jesus and that might be distorted, but also they might like really not pay much attention to him and focus on other stuff. Or secondly, these false teachers in verse 9 go on ahead. So maybe they've started with Jesus, but now they've gone on to the deeper truths or the secret things or advanced teaching or whatever it might be. They've moved on and Jesus is on the periphery and all of these other interesting niche ideas are what they are focusing on. But the gospel isn't the ABC of Christianity. It's the A to Z. It's everything, you know. John in this letter is saying to us again and again, make your home or abide in the gospel. Abide in who Jesus is and what he's done. That's where you want to live. Don't move on. Don't go somewhere else. Don't set up camp in another teaching or another thing. Set it up in Jesus and what he's done. And he's warning us here. 
If there's a teacher or a church that is focusing on other things, danger, danger, warning, warning, the red light should go off because something is wrong there. And he's saying, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Just looking at external things. Look at the size of the building. Look how many people go there. Look who attends. Look at all of these good things they're doing. He says, yeah, that's true. That's amazing. But it's not a sign of God's blessing. The same can be true about a shopping center or a soccer team or a cult. It doesn't mean God's blessing is on it. It just means that it's successful. Actually, we don't look externally. We look to the inside. Are they focusing on Jesus? Are they abiding in the gospel? Are they making much of him? And John warns us, again, grown-up talk, mature church. He says, watch yourselves. And when Shell and I were in the U.S. now, we were at a few churches and doing some teaching and learning at conferences and stuff. I think the thing that really struck me was kind of the safety there. Like, we stayed at this house in San Diego, and it had these beautiful big glass pane windows with no burglar bars, no alarm system. You know, the, the one night we got home at about 12 at night, the door was unlocked, the door was open, just the gate was closed there. It kind of shocked me, you know. In fact, we broke into the house the one day. We got home, we didn't have keys, we'd forgotten them. So I went around the back, there was no fence around the house. Went around the back, I was more worried about being caught by the neighbor than I was about getting in. Popped the mesh thing off the window, climbed in, was in like this, it was easy, you know. And what shocked me was the, the delivery guys, the postmen, coming and leaving parcels on the doorstep. People had ordered these expensive, fancy things from Amazon. They just leave it on the doorstep and then go. It's not going to be stolen. I thought some South Africans could make a killing <laughs> moving over there. Just clean up shop, just door to door. I'll take this, I'll take this. It would be easy, guys, like shooting fish in a barrel. But the reality is, in South Africa, we've been taught to watch ourselves, you know? We've been taught not everything is safe. When we stop at traffic lights, actually we check, are our doors locked? Um, are my valuables hidden away? Like, is there anyone around? We're, we're aware. You know, we lock up at night. We make sure the home is secure and protected because we know there is danger out there. There are possibilities that things could happen to us. And in a sense, we live in a spiritual South Africa, not a spiritual San Diego. We live in a, a world where things can happen, where bad things are a reality, where Satan is real. And we don't want to live scared. We don't want to live in fear. But we want to be wise and we want to watch ourselves so that nothing does happen. The book of 2 John is calling us to grow up into maturity. And my last point this morning is this. In verse 4, it says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Some. That word some really irritated me, you know. He's rejoicing about some of Harbor City walking in the truth, not all. And I just thought for us this morning, you know, what are the truths that we are walking in and what are the lies we're walking in? Probably for all of us in this room, we've got a bit of both. There's some truth, there's some deception. There's some things that we know, but actually we don't believe that that's really true. I would love it if this morning we left here actually being aware of some of those lies, some of the ways Satan wants to trip us up, and actually leave here walking in the truth. So if I could ask you to close your eyes, I want to fire some questions at you, and I'd love you to answer them internally. Are you living in the truth that God loves you? Are you living in the truth that God accepts you and approves of you? Are you living in the truth that God has forgiven you? Are you living in the truth that God chose you? That God thinks that you are worth a ton, so much that he gave his son on the cross for you? Are you living in the truth that God has adopted you into his family and now you are his child? Are you living in the truth that God is not angry at you? Are you living in the truth that you are not your mistakes or failures or past? And are you living in the truth that Jesus is everything?
Arbor City, we want to make our home in the gospel. We want to abide in it, and we want to let it shape us. I just want to ask if the band could come up. While you guys sit there, if I can ask you to keep your eyes closed. We love to just respond to what God's doing and just ask the Holy Spirit just to meet with us and speak to us and lead us. And just one of the things we're trying to do is just create space in our Sunday meetings. If, if God's spoken to you and you need to respond, I'd love you to come forward um, and just stand in the front. Uh, you can kneel in the front if you want. And just some of the leaders would come around you and pray with you, just ask you what's going on and maybe there's an opportunity to minister to you. But I think there's such a great opportunity in moments like this that we respond to what God is saying and highlighting and we don't miss the moment to actually go deeper and let God kind of massage some things into our hearts. So don't be embarrassed. Like we're going to be worshiping and singing together. But if you want to come forward for some prayer, we'd absolutely love to do that. But can I ask you to stand and I'll pray for us and then we'll worship. Holy Spirit, I just welcome you here. And I thank you for what you've already spoken to us and highlighted to us. And I just ask now that we would respond to you as a church. Where there are lies we are believing instead of the truth, reveal the truth, Lord God. Reveal the lies. I pray we would walk out of here feeling free and light. I pray you would bring healing to us. I pray you would strengthen us. I pray you would help us. And I pray you would help Harvest City to be a church that loves the church, that loves one another, and loves the gospel. So we welcome you here now, Holy Spirit, and we pray in your power, you would speak, and you would minister. And you would